Hello, and welcome to episode 66 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me, as always, is Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, which features discussions with a wide array of people from around the tennis world, all in 30 minutes or less. So if you have any time constraints right now, you should probably turn this one off, switch over to an episode of Carl's show, and come back when you have ample time to listen to us discuss the many issues of the day in a format usually considerably longer than 30 minutes per episode. And that will certainly be the case this week, because there is a ton going on on court, off court, on the future of other courts, all sorts of tennis news, right smack dab in the middle of grass court season. So I want to start with some men's results from this week. We're only one week removed from the Roland Garros finals, but we're already in the heart of grass season. Last week featured an event in Stuttgart, um, Stuttgart, if you care about pronouncing things correctly in in a non-American way. And also uh, Rosemalen in the Netherlands. But I want to start with Stuttgart, where Matteo Berrettini put up an absolutely outstanding performance. This is a guy who, until about five days ago, I would have thought of as a clay court specialist. He'd only really made much of a dent on tour on clay, winning a couple titles and reaching another final and at clay 250s. But shows up at Stuttgart, beats Nick Kyrgios in straight sets, beats Karen Kashinov in straight sets, uh, gets to the final, beats Feliz Auge Ali Asim, so didn't drop a set, didn't drop serve, faced only two break points. Carl, I think we need to explain this. This is someone who, like I said, we're thinking of as a clay court specialist. He seems to cross over very smoothly, despite having presumably pretty limited experience on grass, certainly limited experience on tour. I'm guessing he hasn't practiced a lot on grass in his life. What do you think about Matteo Berrettini crosses over so well onto what usually is considered a totally different surface? He's got a big serve, such a big serve that I think it's curious that he barely played on grass. I mean, his his first matches on grass in the tennis abstract record are just a little over a year ago, and, and this is a 23-year-old, not a teenager. And he also has a decent slice, which he uses a lot more than the average ATP player. And that that definitely helped him from defensive positions uh, in in Stuttgart. So, um, I mean, those are, those are two ingredients that alone are enough to, I would think, make you curious and see how you might do uh, playing some grass challengers. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, maybe just a testament to how, how few grass tournaments there are and how easy it is to avoid this stuff entirely if you're not used to it. Yeah, that's something that I think we'll come back to on this episode. Uh, We've got a whole slew of semi-random things on our in our show notes for this week but i think a lot of it centers around how difficult it can be to understand the grass tendencies both good and bad of various players because the season's so short like you say this is a guy who's who's 23 so he's been playing professional tennis for a while but probably thought of himself as a clay quarter didn't have a good enough ranking to get into most of these atp events directly until last year so it's easier just to skip the grass. I mean, we were just talking before the show that Kasper Ruud, the pride of Norwegian tennis, he's not even practicing on grass courts, even though he's um, he, he's direct entry into Wimbledon for the first time. So players don't really prioritize it, and the schedule doesn't force them to. But 
as as you noted, Carl, um, in our notes, it's not just Berrettini who's done better than expected on grass. A couple other guys, uh, Nicolas Jari and Christian Garin, guys we've been thinking of as as especially Garin, purely a clay court specialist. They both got first round wins. I think those were both in Stuttgart, and Garin pushed Borna Chorich to a third set tiebreak, and. Especially, let's talk about Garin. I mean, Jari fits some of the same mold as Berrettini. Big serve. I'm not sure about the slice, but definitely he's got a big serve. Garin doesn't. Uh, he's more of your your dirt baller, counter puncher, standard issue clay court guy. Um, beyond the serve that that works on all surfaces, what are the skills that you think transfer over uh, for someone like Garin that that means they can be a competitive player on a grass court? Yeah, they both actually made the quarterfinals in oh, okay. in how do you say it? The other the other ATP tournament last week. Hertogenbosch, Den Bosch, we can call it Rosemallen, that's the, the, the site or the, the former venue. I'm not I'm not sure exactly what Rosemallen is, people still call it that. Uh, we can say the one in the Netherlands, the Dutch <laughs> tournament. I'm giving you lots of opportunities, just pick one. Okay, so the one that was in Stuttgart. Yeah, the one that was in Stuttgart Stuttgart. <laughs> Uh, for someone with the last name Bialik, I really should just be better at at uh, pronouncing, but alas. So I didn't see enough of their tennis to say for sure. Um, it, it does seem like a few things could be happening. One is it's not so much that anything specific about clay translate as that they had a really good spring on clay. We saw that as a breakout on clay. And in fact, they've just gotten better as tennis players. And so the trend continues. I don't know if there's enough evidence from previous seasons to suggest that that's a reasonable interpretation, but that's to me the simplest one that, you know, they, the wins they put up on clay were partly a reflection of what they were playing on and partly a reflection of them playing really well. And to the extent that confidence is a real thing that can carry over that, that too carried over. Um, there's also some sort of statement of intent that perhaps suggests they knew something that their results didn't reflect. I mean, you don't have to play the tournaments this week. Most of the top players didn't. A lot of players play one or zero tournaments leading in to Wimbledon. And, and even Berrettini, we were talking about his limited grass record. He tried to qualify for... Uh, for two grass tournaments last year leading into Wimbledon because he knew that his ranking was high enough to be able to play Wimbledon. And so he he had played a lot of matches on grass that he didn't really have to play going in. So maybe he had already practiced enough to realize, hey, I can be pretty good on this surface. Maybe maybe coaches or, or other players had pointed this out. Hey, you've got you know a top 10% serve. That'll probably help you a lot. Um so it could be that there are things that would never be reflected in ELO or anything that we see publicly that these guys had already identified that got them playing in the first place this week. Yeah, that's true. And I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned the ELO factor. Going back to the first thing you said, that it could just be a general upward trend. That, I mean, Garin played way better in on clay this season than on, in previous seasons. So you don't even have to call it momentum, I don't think. He just flat out got better. I mean, we don't know why or or what particular thing he improved, but I mean, Garin in March 2019 was a considerably better player than Garin in March 2018. So it stands to reason that if you're making predictions for Garin in June 2018, then 
I mean, sorry, June 2019, then last year's June performance probably isn't that suggestive either. Uh, and going back to the way that my, my surface ELO predictions work, what I've consistently found is that ha if you're trying to predict match outcomes, then you use half surface specific ELO, which is based only on results on that surface, and half overall ELO. So Gar I don't know what his number was 52 weeks ago, but Garin's overall ELO is way better um, this year than it was last year. I think we can confidently assume. So half of what goes into his match prediction uh, is way better than it was a year ago, even if he has no grass specialist skills. Um, I mean, one thing that I think we've talked about before is that, that drop shots are effective on both surfaces. That I mean, maybe for different reasons, but... Uh, but drop shots are better on grass or clay than than they are on hard courts. Are there any other tactics or skills that you think work on on the two natural surfaces, but not as much on hard court? Well, I think any uh, backspin, uh, underspin, side spin is more effective on clay and grass than it is on on hard courts. Um, I mean, just hitting a lot of slice backhands against heavy topspin on clay isn't going to get you that far. But as a change-up shot or, um, you know, certain certain net shots can be pretty effective um, on clay. And we did see and talk about on clay the extent to which some players figured out that, um, that coming to net against opponents who are standing way way back can be effective so for a different reason than than it's effective on on grass but i i just don't know if any of that is frequent enough to totally explain it um i mean here's another very simplistic explanation which is these seasons are so close together that players who are healthy in the clay season are more likely to be healthy in the grass season and, and that is a big part of the battle just being in good shape to show up to these tournaments that if they were doing well three weeks ago, they're probably just in, in general going to be healthier than the average player right now. Yeah, that's a fair point. And that, that's something that could be tested, I suppose. You could look at, just look at blocks of five weeks or something and, and see whether like the, the, the last five weeks of the clay season, how performances in those five weeks correlate with performances in the five weeks of the grass season and look at other adjacent five-week periods and then more distant five-week periods. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see that. Uh, you yeah. also you also mentioned ELO, so a couple of questions for you. First, Berrettini is now nine overall in ATP ELO. Uh, where do you think he ranks in grass ELO? I, I looked at it uh, before. Isn't he number six or something? Not quite. Number eight. No, he's number nine also. He's but, number nine, okay. But still kind of staggering for, you know, having had one tour level win on grass coming into last week and, and showing how quickly you can rise. I mean, I think that's the biggest motivation for these guys is that they know they can rise quickly in the grass ELO <laughs> rankings uh, with just a good week. So why not show up and try? But a more serious question is, you know, you, we've talked a lot on the show about the 50-50 the blend between overall ELO and surface ELO as, as being the best predictor of match outcomes. And I get that you found what was the best blend um, that worked 
best across all three surfaces that you would use the same ratio. Do you think if you were just trying to predict grass court matches best and you were allowing a different factor for each surface that you would be weighting the overall more that there's this idea of because the sample size is just inherently going to be lower, a lot lower on average in terms of grass court matches that the overall would would count for more in terms of getting on the margins a more accurate prediction? Well, you'd think so. And I've had the same intuition, uh, but I did something, I wrote something a couple of years ago, I think. I, I don't know if we discussed it on the show, but I know we discussed it offline that uh, I found that that these 50-50 grass predictions were as good, if not better, than than forecasts on other surfaces. And I, I'm not sure I totally understand why. It doesn't quite seem right, but one explanation is that that surface elos stabilize pretty fast. I mean, that doesn't entirely jibe with what we've seen. Like you mentioned that Berrettini just shot up in the course of one tournament. Uh, we've got Dan Evans at number 10 in the grass elo, which, I mean, at least raises an eyebrow. I mean, it's conceivable, but it's it, duty sale at number 12 in the grass elo raises an eyebrow even further right off your forehead. But um, but if if in general they stabilize pretty quickly, uh, that could mean that we're looking at hard and clay-specific elos too broadly. Like maybe we should be breaking clay into like fast clay and slow clay or breaking hard into at least into indoor outdoor, but maybe, maybe three segments of super fast, fast and medium hardcore or something like that. Um, but I mean, the short answer is, is no, apparently according to the data, we shouldn't use the overall, we shouldn't give the overall ELO more weight in predicting grass results. And, but I'm not sure I can, I can explain why that is while simultaneously looking at Feliciano Lopez and Dudy Sela in the top 12 of, of grass court ELO, but the, that's and, the direction the numbers are pointing. And Manorino, the other winner this past week, is number seven now in grass ELO. Yeah, and he's a couple... Yeah, I think the main problem with... The, at least at least the problem with the grass ELOs, based on what my intuition, intuitions are telling me, is that because because you go 47 weeks of the year with no grass court matches, the grass court ELO is heavily influenced by older results. So you've got Sam Query at number six because he made the semifinals two years ago at Wimbledon. Yep. So I don't think Sam Query is your number six guy at Wimbledon by any stretch of the imagination, but he had that one big result and that's enough. Uh, Baptista Agu is number five. And I noticed that before we started recording, I looked back at his results. He's... He's solid on clay. He's had some decent wins, but there's not even something like grass. the... Sorry, on, on grass. Well, he's solid on all surfaces. <laughs> I just can't decide what I'm talking about. Yeah, solid on grass, but he doesn't even have a signature run like Queries to, to justify his ranking. So so you've got some you've got stale results mixed in with things that look like they're overreacting too much, like maybe Manorino or Berrettini. It's, it, it seems like... like standard issue small sample size stuff that we should be if not if not throwing away at least taking with a giant grain of salt but that isn't what the numbers say and maybe that's just because we aren't talking about huge differences like you've pointed out with the wta for a long time like it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to delve too much into the difference between WTA number three in ELO and number WTA number 10 because they're like 50 points away or something. So it 
there's not a huge difference. And the same thing is true once you get past the first few Grass Elo guys. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about uh, Duty Sela being being a bizarre pick at number 12. But, I mean, he's already under 1,700, which in Elo terms is not all that outstanding. I mean, the next 20 guys, probably maybe even 30 guys, are also over 1,600. So... Yeah, he's he's rated a lot higher than them, but not not so much that we'd make Duty Sela a huge favorite over <laughs> Kyrios, Isner, Zverev. I mean, they're all in, in basically the same range. So, in terms of forecasting, in terms of evaluating those forecasts, it's it's not something that's going to give us really skewed, really wonky results. Okay, I'm sold. <laughs> I, that's more than I am. I'm not sure. Not sure I'm sold. I'm, I'm trying to communicate both my results and my skepticism of my results. And um, and and a fair chunk of the show, whether it's stated explicitly or not, is Jeff reminding me of things that he wrote and we talked about years ago. So thanks, Jeff. Yeah, and then my role is to express skepticism about my own results. That that's proof that if I, if if you ever not you Carl but you as in anyone ever ever write something, says something that I express skepticism about. It's not, it, it's not a negative judgment. It's just what I do. Sometimes people will quote me back at myself and I'll think, yeah, that, that sounds a little iffy. I don't know why he said that. <laughs> I can explain why that's probably wrong. So, okay, we've been talking so far about these players who are kind of surprise grass successes and what, what kind of skills might be um, might be causing that. I have one more thing to throw in there, which is kind of a pet theory, which is that the natural surfaces, what they have in common is in right there in the name that they're natural. And on a hard court, especially a professionally maintained hard court, the bounces are very predictable. Uh, it, it's, it's not exactly like playing a ball machine, but it's a little like playing a ball machine. But it's a lot different on, on clay or grass, especially once they've been played on for a while. So you have to react more to just... Not not necessarily really bad bounces, because you can see those on TV, but even just slightly unpredictable behavior of the ball that you can't always recognize as a spectator. And I think maybe there are players who have a talent for that, that they, maybe they've trained differently, maybe it's just a natural skill, uh, natural skill for natural surfaces. But I think there might be something there. I have no idea how to quantify that one, but that's another thing to, to throw in the mix. So it'd be something like reaction time or a short backswing or just generically what people call good hands? Yeah, that that could be it. And, and yeah, maybe those are two separate things because someone like Manorino definitely has a short backswing. I'm not sure if apart from that he has short reaction time or quick reaction time. Uh, I think you'd say... Federer's a guy with a quick reaction time, even if he doesn't have a super short backswing. Uh, although he's not a great example here because clay is definitely his weakest surface. Uh, but yeah, I think I think those are the the skills that I'm gesturing at. Um, it it but, could it could yeah. also uh, to build on your pet theory, which you'll probably in two years question or maybe sooner. Yeah, definitely sooner. There's, you know, I was I was trying to kind of make sense of. If you're good at net on grass, then well, it's it can be good at times to come to net on clay. But I wasn't totally. I'm questioning myself now. I wasn't totally believing it as I was saying it. But maybe being good at net is also a signal that you have good hands, quick reaction time, and that that would also pay off well even when you're playing the ball on the bounce at the baseline. Yeah, it could. And 
and even even baseline skills are really rewarded on grass by having the quick hands because that's the part of the court that gets worn down the most and I would think that would result in in at least slightly unpredictable bounces uh, I haven't played enough on grass to really get a sense of that and I don't think I've played on grass that's very similar to the the European grass but I know you've played on the Wimbledon courts like do you think that's that's a valid thing to say about baseline play on grass as well Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And I mean, yeah, although it's also I just I've never played enough consecutively on grass to know to what extent it's just getting used to how weird the bounce is, even when it's exactly what you should expect, how weird it feels to someone who doesn't play on grass. Yeah, the, I think the transition is is the hardest thing of all. Uh, yeah. So if, if you're thinking of of betting on Casper first match at Wimbledon, I would advise the other guy as your pick, whoever that it turns out to be. One other pet theory thinking about that is maybe players who exit the French Open disappointingly early end up overperforming in this first week on grass because they've had a lot of time to practice on it and, and not be as surprised by the bounce and the transition. Yeah, and that's another thing that's now testable because just I think it's just in the last few years, maybe it goes back further, but at least in the last few years, there has been a grass court challenger in the UK. I think it was in Manchester this year, um, the second week of the French Open. Um, so we could look at the people who play that. I mean, you're talking about guys, I think, who who just switched to practicing on grass, but some people are, are playing matches on grass. And one example of that is Dan Evans, who won that tournament the second week of the French Open and then won a challenger this past week as well. So pretty extreme case, but and he was already someone we I think we think of as a as a guy who is comfortable on grass, has grass applicable skills, but worked out for him to have all that grass match practice under his belt a week ahead of most other players. Yeah, and it makes me then further wonder if we found this if we as and you found that this was a real effect early in the grass season, does that advantage continue or by the time Queens and Holly roll around or by the time Wimbledon at least rolls around, is everyone had enough time to sort of even that out? Sometimes I think my playing in the winter, through the winter in tennis, gives me at my level an advantage in April and May over players who haven't played all winter, but that they quickly catch up and start beating me again once they've had a month or two under their belts. Yeah, and that's a fantastic segue to something else I wanted to talk about, which is this this notion of warm-up tournaments. And this is the big warm-up week on the ATP side with Holland, Stuttgart, so Federer's playing, Zverev, Chorich, lots of great, Sitsipas, lots of great players are playing this week. Um, but notably, Nadal is not. Nadal has already said he's not playing any warm-ups. I'm not sure if Djokovic is planning on playing Eastbourne next week. He, he played Eastbourne at least once in the last couple couple of years, so maybe he will be in Eastbourne. But he hasn't played a ton of grass court warm-ups in his career, and that hasn't seemed to hold him back too much with his multiple Wimbledon titles. But in, I feel like we have some version of this conversation before every slam. Like, the, the importance of the warm-ups, the importance of, like, a warm-up two weeks before or one week before, uh, the possible value of the exhibitions in addition to or instead of the warm-ups... I mean, there's a lot of issues that, that easily spring to mind with every slam because we're always looking for some edge on slam forecasting. And the the most obvious things that tell us who's hot, who's not, who's ready, who's possibly injured, all that stuff, 
the most obvious thing is just looking to where they just played and how they performed there. And the grass season turns a lot of that on its head. I mean, some guys are doing the typical thing. Like Federer always does, does holla, just like you can count on people to play two weeks before Australia. But like I said, Nadal skipping the warmups. He's often done that. Djokovic hasn't played too many. And this is the surface where you think it's the most important. I mean, as we've been talking about, there seems to be some value in getting used to the surface. Maybe it's good enough to practice, but do you, do you think that maybe this that, that the the way the grass season plays out, the fact that Nadal and Djokovic have piled up so many trophies on at Wimbledon, do you think that's telling us that we are we're overestimating the importance of warm-ups the rest of the season if if they're not that important on what should be the the surface that requires the warm-up the most uh possibly you know i think that what it tells me the most is just how different life is as a professional tennis player if you are one of those three guys uh than it is for for everyone else just in that first of all you know, you said, well, they can practice. Not only can they practice, but unlike the way most players can practice, they can have a whole staff of coaches. They can get anyone they want to come practice with them and play any style they ask for and do any drill they, they want. And when I say anyone, I mean like other professional tennis players who'd be honored at the chance and probably benefit greatly from it. Um, and uh, So you're saying Tim Smichek can't do that? Uh, I mean, I think he can be such a wonderful person that Federer would want to invite him all the time to play, but he wouldn't be available because Djokovic invited him too. But there aren't that many Tim Smichicks out there. Uh, you know, and then they don't they don't need the points, they don't need the money, and they don't need the matches because they go deep in so many tournaments. I think that's another factor. Like, we think of it in terms of you need matches on the surface, but I think for a lot of guys, they also just want matches, period. And none of those players have gone long periods with, you know, feeling like a great shortage of match play. So I, I, I think uh, there are a lot of things the exhibitions bring besides just getting ready for the surface. Um, you know, other guys are like jockeying for their their position. Some of them might be on the cusp of being seated. So there are things they get out of the warmups that just aren't as relevant for the big three. Do you think that that for I guess you're saying big three. I think I'm really only talking about talking about Djokovic and Nadal because Federer always plays grass warmups and he goes deep in them. So I, he he generally has as much or more grass practice than anybody, except for maybe Dan Evans. But Djokovic and Nadal they'll show up with one tournament, sometimes zero tournaments under their belt, maybe just exhibitions. Do you think that makes them uh, slightly more vulnerable in the early rounds? slash like it's more important for them to play their way into the tournament than it would be on say the hard courts of the u.s open well i mean this would be one thing that we can try to quantify i keep using we for you and it just seems unfair um i you know our friend suleiman ajaz who's been on the show before has done the analysis of rafa early at wimbledon uh, and how he seems much more vulnerable than, than Rafa late. And that could be some combination of getting used to grass. It could be some combination of the grass turning into something more clay-like. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily been the case for Djokovic. But, I mean, uh, what I'm saying is I think we could look at the match records they've had in the early rounds at Wimbledon 
controlled for how they ended up doing and how that compares to other majors, and we'd have a pretty small sample size, but maybe be able to to say something meaningful. Um, but yeah, I think if they do have problems uh, in those tournaments and they do seem to play their way in, it could be more about just their grass comfort level, period, because there are some years Rafa has played warm-up tournaments, and he struggled in those warm-up tournaments and not gotten a lot of matches. Yeah, I mean, that that's, that's the other confounding factor when you're talking about Federer on clay or Rafa on grass, then, I mean, they've managed to overcome it not being their, their favorite preferred surface, but there is always that factor. I mean, a, a good player on a, on a great day can beat them on those surfaces, certainly much more easily than on one of their preferred surfaces. Um, I felt like I had one follow-up to immediately what you are saying, but it just slipped my mind, so maybe we'll skip it. Uh, we've been talking about the big three, and we've used the we, in this case, I'm using the word we as the whole tennis community. So, Carl, you can use that as your cover next time you say we for me. Just pretend like you're talking about the entire tennis analytics community, which does include other people who could conceivably uh, work on some of these projects. But we, as in the entire tennis community, have been saying big three a lot lately because Andy Murray retired or something. He made a retirement announcement in January, but immediately had hip surgery, the same hip surgery that Bob Bryan had that he's since come back from. And... It's, it's now happening. Andy Murray, six, six months, five months later, is, is back on court this week at Queen's Club. So at least a little bit, the big three is back to the big four. Uh, Murray's singles return is still very much up in the air. But he's playing doubles this week with Feliciano Lopez. I mention that mostly just because it's you know one more thing to be excited about in, in this week's tennis. But one kind of quirky thing I've noticed is... All the press talking about this match, they're all acknowledging it's, it's it's a tough first match because they drew the top seeds, and that makes it sound hard, and it, it is hard because the top seeds in this case are a very good team, but what I think is interesting about it is no, almost no one's mentioning them by name, <laughs> at least in the headlines or the tweets. The top seeds in Queens are uh, Cabal and Farah, the Colombians who, did they, were they semifinalists at Roland Garros? Yeah, only semifinalists at Roland Garros. But a very good team. Been playing together for a long time. Uh, do you think that that Murray... I mean, I, I don't have my, my surface-specific numbers in front of me. I'm guessing that Cabal Farah are not the strongest grass court team. Do you think that Murray and Lopez have much of a shot in the comeback match? I have no idea what shape Murray's in and how, you know, how realistic it is for him to win a match, his first match back. If, if it's Murray near the level we knew him in doubles, then absolutely. I mean, he's a great grass player. Lopez is best on grass. Um, and not a, not a great doubles player, but a very good one with a lot of wins with different partners. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's possible if Murray is, is close to his prior form, then it's possible he'll get more than one match in Queens. Uh, do you think it's going to be a challenge for Feliciano Lopez to play doubles in an impeccably tailored three-piece suit? <laughs> uh, well, I think one of the pieces will be short, so as long as that's the case, uh, tennis can be played. Okay, that's that's the important thing. Uh, just for the record, I want to register for our regular listeners that we are 30 minutes, just barely 30 minutes into the episode, and we have talked about doubles, so we've we've overcome the doubles ghetto of the last five minutes, and... I want to come back to one more doubles thing in just a second, but 
first acknowledge uh, a couple tweets I got from a listener a couple days ago. Last week, we were talking about how there were, it's it's sort of a, a broad theory, maybe one of those things that, that, that sounds better as a, as, a, as a general claim and doesn't hold up with all the specifics. But the, the point was that, that, that Carl made last week was that the best players are not the best because they're the best in particular categories, like having the best backhand, best serve, and so on. They're the best because they're a little above average or maybe a lot above average in every category. Um, so the best server on the ATP is John Isner, but that doesn't make him the best player on tour. None of the best players have the best serve. And I, uh, we tried to extend that to to being more general, saying none of the no great players are the best in any specific category. But one of our listeners pointed out Andy Murray and his lob. And yes, it's a pretty narrow category. Maybe it doesn't quite fall in the in, within the scope of what we're talking about. But that would just that would be nitpicking. I think it's it's a, a very valid point. Um, well, would you agree, I, Carl? And, oh, Andy sorry. Murray's. The, I mean, let's just start with the, the facts of the matter. Would you agree that Andy Murray has the best lob on tour? You know, I was just thinking about it as you read it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that is that does seem plausible." And I thought, "Do I really know like that?" I mean, <laughs> I need to watch a lot of tennis by every player who's a contender to see enough lobs that are in positions where the player, you know, could could show me that he has the best lob. So it's definitely possible Andy Murray has the best lob, but just because my mind immediately agreed does not make me think that that's definitely true. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I had the same first reaction that, yeah, if you'd asked me who had the best lob in tennis and, like, I didn't just forget about people, then, yeah, I think I'd go with Murray. But uh, I probably watch even more tennis than you do when I still run into the same problems. I can't call to mind a... I mean, I just I, I just watched the berrettini auger ali final from start to finish, and... I can't call to mind a Berrettini lob, for instance. So, I mean, I don't, I'm guessing Berrettini doesn't have the best lob in tennis. I think that's a safe bet. But even though I've watched maybe a half dozen Berrettini matches this season, I, would, I couldn't say for sure that his lob is, is not the best in tennis. Um, and multiply that by 100-plus guys, and you see the problem. I mean, uh, uh, and I think that that's going to be a problem with any shot outside the very basics of, of serve, forehand, backhand, maybe transition, net game in general, that you've got to watch so much tennis to make these kind of judgments. And it, that's really the, the magic of analytics is, you know, I, I would have the same problem talking about smashes, but at least a couple of years ago, I did run the number on smashes. And it turned out that I think Songa was the winner by, by a decent margin. So I'm totally comfortable saying Joe Wilford Songa has the best smash on tour. And I just watched one of his matches a few days ago, and, and he he provided plenty of fodder for at least confirmation bias, if not actual confirmation. Um, but Jeff, I think we've been be... doing this show together too long, because as you started that sentence, I was like, Jeff's about to report findings that are confirmation bias, and then you just <laughs> did that same thinking in your head and, didn't, and skipped through the, the middle part. It was impressive. Yeah. Um, that, that's another show title. Right after Jeff is skeptical, we can go to skip through the middle part. Uh, so I, mean, I think quantifying lobs would be harder, although possible. But that's what you'd have to do. I mean, I, it, the I think it was Luke Barrage who, who tweeted the, the that comment to me, and, and he he pointed me to a couple of videos of of 
of highlight reels of Murray hitting lobs and you know you watch those and I feel like it feels like the the burden of proof is on you to come up with someone who's even possibly better than that so I think I'm I'm more confident saying Murray's the best lob than saying some particular player is maybe the best drop shot or the best half volley or something uh but but yeah, I mean, point taken. It's 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 a really tough judgment to make as just a person who watches a lot of tennis. Yeah, it's. I'm glad you brought up highlight reels because my first thought was, yeah, there probably are a lot of highlight reels of Murray doing a lot of different things. But you know, maybe especially the lob because maybe that's his biggest competitive advantage. And two names that have come to mind during this conversation, but I, it's not like I can remember a lot of specific lobs are Ferrer and Batista Agut. Uh, so I don't know if if. They actually have hit great lobs while I've been watching, let alone whether they really do have great ones. But my next thought was probably no one has made a highly viewed video collecting their best lobs. So (laughs) it would just be hard for me even to find their best ones, let alone their average ones. Well, and as the ringleader of the match charting project, I can I can give you one other factor here that if you want to make a highlight reel of Andy Murray doing anything, there's a material out there to do that. Maybe anything is too strong, but anything on the tennis court. Uh, if you want to make a highlight reel of Roberto Bautista Agu doing anything before about 2017, then good luck. I mean, if you want to make a highlight reel of him hitting forehand winners, you're going to have to go to other highlight reels. The, the match video just isn't as readily available, maybe by an order of magnitude. So if you're going by highlight reels, then your winner in every single category is going to be one of the big four. Yeah. And, you know, it occurs to me that the match charting project gets us a a little closer here. Like there aren't timestamps, but having knowing what happens on every point shot by shot, if you combine that with some kind of log of like when points were, you could you could actually pull from a video automatically, you know, all the lob points. And then you could do that for every match a player had. Uh, And this is something that the Grand Slams, at least in the past, at times have had available to journalists and players of like, show me every, um, I don't know, they didn't give you every option, but pretend they did, like, show me every lava player hit in this match, you would just click one thing and see them all. And this is not the world we live in yet, in general, in tennis, but I can see this in the future as one possibility. Yeah, and we're getting closer, and, and as much as it pains me to talk about them in a positive light, I think that's an IBM thing you're talking about at the U.S. Open. Yeah. Uh, IBM not only does that, but they they do like automatically generated highlight reels, which I, I think are not quite as solid as just pressing a button and seeing the lobs. It's easier to identify a lob than it is to identify a highlight, whatever that means. But same thing with lobs, not only is IBM doing it, but you can do that with PlaySight too, can't you? Yes, yes, that's right. That's a great point. So there, there's probably, you know, <laughs> at least for like a college player, or a high school player, an amateur player out there, a pretty sweet automatically generated highlight reel of lobs. Yeah, so maybe maybe the best or second best lobber in the world as judged by highlight reels is, is one of the guys who competed for the NCAA championship not that long ago, a few weeks ago, I guess. Um yeah, so I mean, we'll, we'll have more material there. Maybe this will prompt me to try to quantify the, the value of lobs. But I mean, that's it, it's so tricky, so situational. Um, one thing we can't say for sure, Andy Murray has a really good one. I don't think we can, we can caveat that too much. 
Yeah, I, I think I think Rafa's is pretty outstanding too. And again, like you know, I'm I'm probably recalling like three from my from my mental archives of matches watched. But yeah, I I, I think there are probably Rafa fans who were appalled to hear that Murray was was being considered obviously the best. Yeah, I mean, there's some Rafa fans who are pretty consistently appalled. Just period. If we say something. Do you remember his tweener lob winner over Djokovic in 2011, I think, at Rome or Madrid? I don't, but I'm guessing there's a highlight reel of that one. Yes, and everyone should watch it and then um, jump to conclusions. Yeah. Yeah, I, the, as I could have predicted when we started this wide-ranging episode with so many different topics, we're veering off of even that long list of topics, but... One thing that's come up in last week's talk about these different categories and and whether the greats are the best in these categories is that I'm not sure that Rafa is the best in any, like, number one out of 100 or number one out of 500 in his career um, in any specific category. But the longer the list of categories get, like, if you start breaking down forehand, backhand, volley, drop volley, half volley, all the different categories you could dream up, are there any that Rafa's not, like, top... I don't know, 20th percentile in? Uh, at his peak, yeah, probably not. I mean, you can I, I can think of things that when he was first winning French Opens but wasn't as complete a player as he became that that he wasn't. Like, I, I think parts of his, um, his net game, maybe his slice. But, yeah, I mean... At at at, the, at his best in each of those shots, he's maybe even higher than top 20%. And I think that's something you can't say about the rest of the big four. I mean, certainly Djokovic is out of out of consideration because of the smash. Uh, I think Murray Federer, under forehand. And Federer until recent, at least until recently, maybe still now because of the backhand. Uh, I mean, it's okay, but you wouldn't say he's top 20% backhand on tour, I don't think. I wouldn't. I've heard commentators say it, but yeah. Not, not... Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of like Rafa fans being appalled because we said something. Commentators have said anything you want about Roger Federer. <laughs> Uh, anything good anything well yeah probably anything bad on occasion but not nearly as often um if you could, you can take it out of context so i'm sure this is a, a subject we'll come back to maybe i'll try to do some work on it and get a better sense of how far we can push this claim about the best players and how good they are in different categories but i did promise one more doubles topic wait jeff sorry and, just one very yeah. quick thing since we were talking before about the big three and how much they play on grass, and you said you were really talking about Djokovic and Nadal and their tendency to not play warm-up tournaments or at most play one, and that Federer plays a lot, I think it is notable, given something we've talked about before, that he played three clay tournaments and he's only playing one grass warm-up tournament this year in the context of is he going for the most titles of all time. And I'm just saying that because I just saw flashed on screen the as I'm rewatching the Berrettini match that Federer won Stuttgart last year, and he would have had a very high probability in your forecast of winning if he'd entered with that draw. So in terms of opportunities to pad the total, uh, this, I guess, says something about his intent that he wasn't here. Do you think he would have played Stuttgart had he lost, say, two or three rounds earlier in Paris? It's a great question. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, his quote was something like, I've decided that... Just playing one is the right number. But yes, he, he has at times made late decisions based on early exits. So um, th- that could have been decisive. Like maybe if he had um, 
lost in the third round or fourth round that he would have he would have shown up. And maybe he knows something we don't know that he's going to play until he's forty five, and if he has to go to Atlanta every year to pad the win total, he's going to get there. He's I not think, worried about it. I, I still think if the goal is to pad the total, then he should play three grass warm up tournaments every year. That's the best shot. And Newport. He oh, that's Newport. right. He could play. I'm, it's amazing he hasn't. I mean, you know, they're planning on renaming the Tennis Hall of Fame for him, so why not? I would hope so, yeah. So I promised one other doubles topic, and this is pretty big news in, in the doubles world, that um, Pierre-Hugerbert is splitting, has split with Nicolas Mahou, his longtime doubles partner. They've won the career slam. Is that right? That's right. So that, that's outstanding. Herbert is... Not only one of the best doubles players, but even better if you consider him next to his peers, because so many of the top players in doubles are are older, either sticking around for a long time or switching to doubles after a, a singles career. Herbert is still in his 20s, um, very credible singles player. He's been in the top 100 for a long time. We've talked about him occasionally as someone with the potential to go higher. The reason he gave for splitting is that he wants to focus on his singles career, I don't know how much doubles he'll continue to play, maybe with a, a mix of, of partners like Jack Sock did for a while. But I'm curious. It, it, it seems like a logical move to say, I'm going to focus more on singles. I'm not going to commit to a, playing with the same partner most weeks. Do you think that's going to make a big difference? I mean, is is this something that Air Bear needed to do to like crack the code to level up in singles? I don't, I don't know if we have enough prior cases to really study it. I mean, Jack Sock at various points has said he's focusing on singles and, and you know, it's not clear what that did for, for his singles and whether he really was focusing on it. Um, and I, I guess I partly don't understand completely what it means. Is the issue the doubles matches? Is the issue choosing where to play that week to, to sync with your partner? Is it um, the practice, is it like the personal relationship that you need to maintain? Maybe it's all those things, but I'm just wondering, like, if there's just one part that, that a player felt was holding him back, could he dial back on that part and still be one of the best doubles players? Yeah, that's a good point. Because I know that the, the doubles specialists, like their practice time is very geared towards doubles. Like the Bryans have been doing doubles specific practice since they were kids. Uh, and I think that makes them fairly unique, but I'm sure other doubles regulars are doing double specific practice. But Jack Sock, on the other hand, <laughs> I mean, amazing doubles player, and he has the results to prove it. But I, I mean, I'm making this up. I have no idea. But I'm guessing that Jack Sock has never done a double specific practice in his life if he couldn't help it, or in, unless he's you know at the U.S. Open and he's in the late rounds of the doubles and not in the singles. Like, it's never been a priority for him. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, again, we're just guessing. But uh, who knows where Herbert falls in that in, on that spectrum? Like, obviously, he's always cared about singles. He's entering tons of singles draws. But yeah, maybe that's the part of his game that gets the short shrift when deciding how to allot his practice time. Uh, and he's a servant volleyer, so unlike Sock, you'd think he'd he'd be able to find some middle ground between the practices or get something for doubles from singles practices, even if he doesn't want to do double specific practice. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's a factor too. Is maybe he plays that way partly because that's what he's practicing, um, or because he's got the so, so much more practice on the doubles court. I mean, it works for him. He's very good at it. But there's a reason that not many guys are serving volleying these days. So 
maybe that's not the way he's going to win. Maybe he needs to focus on other skills. Now, Jeff pulled that headline out of something I sent him where I thought the big story was that the Skoopsky brothers split up. And that's the second set of siblings, I think, in recent years and pro doubles that have split up and also maybe helped to demonstrate this maxim that when the Bryan brothers are healthy, they have a unique bond as twins that even other siblings don't have. Do you think that's true? I don't know. Uh, I mean, we have a sample of one or two, depending on how you count. But it, it does seem like um, knowing that even even teams that, that said they knew they would always play together eventually got an opportunity that was too good to pass up. So, I mean, like if Bob keeps playing, but his hip holds him back from being at the same level as his brother, would Mike take a call from, I don't know, um, Jamie Murray Mar- or something? Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe. i never say never. Yeah, I guess uh, it didn't occur to me that anything having to do with the Scoopskis was, was big news. Um, no offense, they're great players, but uh, generally pretty far from the headlines. I also, uh, in that same category, I, I, I think the issue with the Scoopskis is maybe not so much that they they chose not to play together, but they recognized that they would have, at least one of them would have better opportunities Uh playing with a stronger player because so much of doubles once you're outside the very top rungs of doubles so much of it is just getting into tournaments that's something that came up in your conversation with french open champions kevin kravitz and andy meese a few months ago on 30 love that i mean some no matter how much you like your partner if the only way to get into a tournament is playing with somebody else you're going to play with somebody else um and in the longer term, that might mean not playing with your twin brother. And the on the women's side, the the Kitchenocks, who've been moderately successful as a doubles team, they've been splitting up lately, and they they split up for Roland Garros, and I think they made the the third round and the quarterfinals respectively with different partners. So maybe that's working for them. Maybe maybe they'll split up, build their rankings enough that they don't have to split up anymore. <laughs> um, doubles is complicated, I guess. So somehow we've gotten to 50 minutes on the clock without talking about any women except for just now the Kitchenock twins. So let's do a, a quick recap and, and look forward at some of the things that are happening on the WTA. One of the bigger stories this week was, I don't know whether to call this an on-court story, an off-court story, but in Nottingham, the weather was horrible. Uh, they've got a WTA international there. Uh, and they had to play the entire first two rounds, I think, and maybe some of the quarters. I'm not sure of the details, but they had to play a ton of matches on indoor hard courts at a grass court event. And I'm wondering what you think about that, Carl. I mean, you got to get the tournament done somehow. So I know nobody really wanted to play it on indoor hard courts, but they were already switching to playing these indoor hard court matches on Tuesday, I think. I mean, do you think that's the right call? Should there be some way to get this done on on grass courts, even if it means bunching up matches? I mean, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the forecast was just awful all week. And and so it was, it was such an, as much as we, we joke about rain in England, like I think this was so unusually bad that we should hesitate to jump to conclusions that are too broad. Um, I, I do think, you know, it sometimes it feels like cheating to read notes that you wrote and and already start <laughs> reacting to them, but we don't have that much time, so let's skip the middle part. Um, you know, I think that 
we all are there's just so many competing values and trade-offs in scheduling tournaments and so many people come to that dilemma by insisting that one thing is non-negotiable but then that means everything else can become a mess so it's very expensive for a small tournament to get a roof so i'm not saying that that's a solution necessarily for any small tournament but um you know there are lots of like undiscussed trade-offs like is it is it worth it to um to avoid players having to play twice or even three times in a day uh to switch surfaces or to switch you know from outdoors to indoors is is it worth it in terms of the impact to fans and and to tv like um maybe maybe the answer is that the, the most important thing given the fairness to players too is that you play on whatever surface is available and too bad if it's not the main one but unless you have the resources to have every op- option available to you there's no great option and somebody's perfect thing is going to be tossed out in the trade-offs yeah that's a good point and i I personally don't object too much to doubling up on matches, but that's a pretty big thing to ask of players who are playing a warm-up tournament, probably going to play another one, might have to play again on Tuesday. So you could have a, a tournament winner who's played like five matches in four days and then has to travel somewhere else and play again a couple days later. Uh, so, I mean, obviously in the grand scheme of things, the surface on which the Nottingham International's first and second round matches are played are not that important. Uh and and that's a good point. I mean, there's just there, there's so many trade offs in in making this making this whole tennis season work, uh, and so many different stakeholders, which is what gives us some of the controversies that never seems to totally end. And since we don't have a lot of time left, I just want to make a, a few quick observations on on things that we should bring up. But there's there's one controversy I want to talk about. So I got I have to get Carl's opinion on on this one, but. We'll wait two more minutes. So one thought on the Nottingham final. I just watched that before we recorded this. It ended up being Caroline Garcia versus Donna Vekic, two very good grass court players. And it was a fantastic match. If you are a men's tennis fan and think you don't like women's tennis, first of all, I think you're probably not watching enough women's tennis. You've got some other kind of weird hangover bias going on. But if that's you, watch this match. I think it will convert you. Um... If that's not you, you should still watch that match because it was fun. But great match there. Um, I don't want to spend the time really previewing this week's tournaments, but just to acknowledge that, as usual, really strong field in in Birmingham. Um, Naomi Osaka's playing along with a ton of other stars, including Karolina Pliskova. Really interesting first-round match in Ashley Barty versus Donna Vekic. Uh, even Majorca, which is, this is a big surprise. This is an international happening the same week as WTA Premier. So usually those draws are, are quite weak. But this tournament has Kerber, Azarenka, Anisimova, Elise Mertens, Sevastova, Belinda Bencic. Just the top quarter is, I mean, something to behold. In the top quarter, out of eight players, that includes Kerber, Maria Sharapova as a wild card, Allison Risk, who just won in her Togenbosch over Kiki Burtons, um, and Caroline Garcia coming off her Nottingham win. So, I mean, that's a just mind-blowingly strong quarter in a WTA international. And on the men's side, like we've said, Hala is in play. Federer's back. Zverev and Chorich are there as well with their results, good results in Hala. And then at Queen's Club, pretty strong field there, in addition to having Andy Murray on this on, on, in the doubles field. Kevin Anderson's playing his first event back since Miami. He'll be a big factor, uh, at least someone to watch at Wimbledon. 
And a couple interesting first-round matches there are Kyrgios Manorino, with Manorino coming off of his first title, and then uh, Del Potro drew Denis Shapovalov in the first round. So, I mean, as usual, a ton of great tennis to watch just in the next few days, and then probably even better as we approach the end of those weeks. But the big news that I want to spend our last five minutes on is the U.S. Open this year will allow coaching from the stands. Uh, I have some thoughts, but Carl, what do you think about this? I think we saw last year how ambiguous it is to officiate. Uh, If we took everyone at their word, the coach knew he was coaching and the player didn't know she was being coached. (laughs) Um, So it's, and it's just like, it takes the umpire's focus away and um, you can't watch both people at the same time. And people are, players are talking to themselves all the time. It's just kind of annoying to have an ambiguous rule. Um, but it's especially dangerous when it can have as, as big of an impact as it did last year. And it's not like the rule had all the impact people's reaction did too, but, um, I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, I know there's like a whole argument about the purity of tennis and the gladiator out on the court by him or herself and all that. But, um, how much is somebody going to do from the stands anyway? The player still has to make all the decisions in the point. Nobody's coaching them shot to shot. Uh, and if they are, they, they would, you know, lose badly quickly because it'd be impossible to pull off. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm fine with it. You don't think that Caroline Wozniacki's coach is going to tell her which direction to serve? <laughs> I think she knows pretty well based on the stats. Yeah, better than anybody. So so it sounds like you don't think it'll have much of an effect on the on what happens on court. No, I mean I'm speaking uh, I'm speaking more confidently than I should be because I don't it's not like I've studied carefully what effect for instance on court coaching has had. I mean, that would presumably be an upper bound on how much effect coaching from the stands could have. Uh, my, my sense anecdotally is that th- there's a lot of, oh, the coach came out and then she suddenly turned it around. And also a lot of the coach came out and she kept doing what she was doing or the coach came out and then she, she slumped. So th- that makes me think that there isn't a, a giant effect there. Um, in which case, yeah, I wouldn't expect a giant one from, from coaching from the stands. I'd expect a smaller one. So you think the the current on court coaching is an upper bound? So, so you think that the coaching from the stands at all times couldn't have more of an effect than that? Uh, I see your point. I mean, it's more frequent. Uh, it just seems like difficult to have a sustained conversation. Maybe again, that was a statement made too confidently. Because I see the the potential benefits to both, but I just think like so much of what we we when we do see think as fans we've identified coaching from the stands now, it seems like such basic reminders of things they already talked about, uh, as opposed to like major adjustments. It, what do we know? Maybe it is you know, hey, I told you that in the second set I would signal to you if it was time to start moving to your left on ad court returns. In which case. Yeah, maybe that's an edge. Maybe the coach is wrong too. Well, like like you've said, I guess not just you, but we've talked about in the past that a lot of coaching is simple stuff, but still players forget that stuff. So to say that 
the coaching that would result is simple doesn't mean it's ineffective, even if it is just saying come forward more or return to the backhand or. That's a great point. I think implicitly I'm trying to subtract out the coaching we all know is already happening because it's so simple and subtle that nobody's called on it. Um, So I guess I'm just assuming that a lot of the stuff that's really easy to communicate with with a simple gesture is already not being um, not being taken out of the game that people think they can get away with it and mostly do. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that definitely happens. And yeah, one one point that you you didn't make it explicitly, but I think you were hinting at this is that I, I don't think most fans realize how how much the chair umpire has responsibility over and needs to be keeping tabs on. And I've seen this comment made a few times with respect to the uh, the new serve clock that it's just one more thing that the umpire has to worry about. And I mean, I have a ton of respect for the chair umpires, and I, I think they can handle everything that's been thrown at them. But that is something that needs to be kept in mind. Like we're expecting Carlos Ramos and company to to know what's going on in two different player boxes, to watch a clock, to handle the players' needs, to have conversations with the players if they're complaining. There, there's so much going on, and some of it's behind them. In the case of the coaches, sometimes so so yeah. If we if we can take one thing off their plate without having much, if any, effect on the game, then I, I think that's a win, and maybe it makes everything better, especially in a case like this where the the rule was already pretty vague and not consistently enforced. Um, the one the one issue I get stuck on is is that it's it's another thing that seems to have the potential at least to make the rich get richer. I mean, not every player has a coach. Uh, the the top players, if there are the if there are some coaches that are better than others and are and that is known, then the the highest played paid players probably have the best coaches so the more coaching is allowed the more advantage they can get from that uh, and certainly if there's an advantage to having any coaching at all that's a big advantage for someone who has a coach versus someone who doesn't even ha- earn enough money on tour or have the federation support or whatever to to pay for a coach to travel with them I mean, do you think that's a, a realistic concern that should be should be weighed when allowing on-court coaching yeah, absolutely. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm not convinced it's that effective, and maybe now we can study it because we can figure out who had a coach at a certain period and who didn't, and we'll have this this change in the rules, at least at one tournament, which will presumably lead to others. And um, I also generally like when there is some kind of great injustice going on for it to be more explicit. So for people who watch the match and see two players and it looks like they're equal, this will be a little, a little more out in the open that one of them has this, this big advantage uh, over the other, even on court where everywhere off court he has, or she has that giant advantage too. Um, it, it, it does feel a little like uh, going into a big standardized test and, and in one case, having gotten coaching in one case, another didn't get it. And you think everyone looks the same in that room taking the test, but they had very different paths to that test. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, l- l- since we're sort of veering into the inequality in tennis topic, I know there's a lot of, at least a lot of conversations happening now, maybe even more than usual, uh, that maybe we'll delve into in future episodes, but certainly not today. We're already at or nearing our time limit here. So 
let's call that good for this week. Next week, we'll have all these results from Birmingham, Majorca, Halle, and Queens Club, as well as maybe time to do more of a proper Wimbledon preview with more of those results under our belt. So, as always, Carl, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And listeners, thanks for sticking with us through episode 66, and you can look forward to another episode about this time next week. See you then.